and welcome back to the podcast, ladies and gentlemen. It's me, Sai, and your co-host. What's up, everyone? It's Josh. Another day, another podcast. We we just finished up wrapping up an interview with Mr. Dan Sieg. He's a great dude. The BMX writer. He's been around the block. So we're really hoping for looking forward to getting that out to you guys. It was it was we had fun interviewing him. Um great guy, really amazing, great attitude, great energy. Um and before he's a he's a really really positive person. Yeah. And before we, we head over to the interview, we want to give big special thanks to the Jason Taylor Foundation for giving us the equipment and giving us the platform to start our own podcast. So with that being said, let's get into it. Hope you guys enjoy. So before we get started, just tell us a bit about yourself to the audience. Like, what's your backstory? What made you fall in love with BMX and being an MC? Well, uh, for starters, my name is Dan Sieg. Um, I'm the No Hate Tour manager. And what the No Hate Tour is, it's an anti-bullying action sports program that travels around the United States spreading the message of, of being better people to each other. Um, I've been doing that in this iteration for about 12 years, give or take. Um, prior to that, I was a professional BMX rider from 2001 to about 2011, give or take. And some of my tour managing and MC duties overlapped with that. Um, I started MC work in 2008. And then when I, my professional riding career ended in 2011 ish, like I said, uh, I proceed the MC stuff full time and I've been doing that ever since. And I joke a lot of times, uh, I get paid more to talk than I ever did to ride. So it's nice. So, like, what got you into BMX in the first place? Like, what made you fall in love? Riding for me, um, you know, when when I came up, uh, it was you know pre-internet, you know, in, in the in the mid to late nineties is kind of when I got into BMX riding, and we had VHS tapes that we would disperse. You know, a friend of mine would get a VHS tape, and oh, so and so did this, and so and so did that, and it was really really cool to see. Um, you know, we'd all go to each other's houses and watch VHS and we had bikes and we're like, wow, these people are doing what we're doing. Um, doing that every single day just kind of grew on, on it. Like one thing led to another and then another started getting better. And and then we'd get another VHS tape and we'd want to go try these other things. And ultimately it came down to I had so much fun doing it that I didn't want to do anything else. That was it. I, I I went to bed at night thinking about riding bikes and I woke up the next morning thinking about riding bikes. School, girls, all of that stuff was just things that got in my way, right? I, I, I woke up, I pushed my way through school. Um, I got good grades because I knew if I didn't, my mom wouldn't let me ride my bike. And I would, I would hammer through my homework as fast as I possibly could because the quicker I got that done, the quicker I could go meet up with my friends and ride some bikes. So it just kind of built off of each other or off of itself and with my my homies that I was riding with. And uh, one thing led to another and graduated high school, mo- uh, moved to North Carolina, and uh, here I am today. So I got a question. Yeah. What really is a mental space like that? How did you go through it to like make the decision to do an unconventional career at the time, maybe? That's a great question. Um, I played a lot of baseball um, when I was in middle school into into my high school career. Uh, my mom was a big, big fan of my uh, uh, baseball career and, and me being a professional ball player someday. And that was my original dream. Um, she was very disappointed when I quit baseball my 10th grade year, right as I was about to go into some varsity ball. 
she was like, she had this big vision for me that I was going to play high school and go off to college and be, you know, be this big pro star. And um, you could have. Yeah. Who knows? You know, and, and that, that come, we get to that in a minute, but that comes down to the discipline of it. And I'm getting ahead of myself here, but I, I told myself when my writing career slowed down, you know, a little while back that if I put even a fraction amount of the energy into writing or I mean, into whatever I'm doing next that I did into writing, I'm going to be just fine. Right. So back to the question at hand, it was my 10th grade year. I remember uh, baseball ending the, the season ended. We had lost the tournament or whatever it was. And we we're all kneeling down around the coach. And he was talking about working on this in the off season. And we're going to start doing this at the beginning of next season. And I remember thinking to myself, I'm like, man, I'm not coming back. You know, like I, I just, I'm not. And I felt like I was going to let my teammates down. I certainly felt like I was going to let my coach down. Um, but it had gotten to the point where I was showing up to practice pretty regularly with bumps, scrapes, bruises, and things like that. The stuff you learn at the beginning of action sports, um, you know, you go through that learning curve of getting beat up quite a bit. Eventually you learn how to fall and it's not so bad, but I was playing baseball when I was going through that learning curve. My coach was getting upset with me. I'm like, Hey man, we're out here to win games. And if you come here hurt, that's going to hurt us as the team. And I felt bad about that. And so that 10th grade year, when I heard about it, or when I was thinking about the next season, I remember thinking I, I I'm not coming back and I let him know a few weeks later, but I didn't let him know then. I just knew right then and there that I wasn't going to come back. No. Yeah. So, you know, just putting your energy in the right places, it just sets you where you want to be. Right. Man, I, I can't stress that enough. And you guys saw the show. The reason our show is so impactful is because it, it comes from a place like from deep within, yeah. you know, and I'm able to deliver the message that I am because I've lived it because I've experienced it. And, and that's, I don't care what you're trying to do, man. If you don't have that passion for it, it's not going to be fulfilling in the long run. Sure. You might make a bunch of money early on. Sure. You might, um, people might be proud of you, you know, that kind of stuff. But if you're not passionate about it, man, it just doesn't have the same effect and you got it. And a lot of people think I need to find my fat passion yesterday. Right. You don't dude. I got lucky. I found my passion when I was like 14. Right. Most people don't find that until they're 24, 34. Some people don't find it by the time they're 40. Right. But you will find it. It's just, you've got to keep on the lookout for it. And more importantly, not settling for anything else, right? People settle into this, this complacent uh, uh, lifestyle. And when you become complacent and when you become just used to how the status quo is, you start to miss the opportunities. Oh, that's too risky. You know, I don't want to go that way because something might happen that affects my really cush, secure lifestyle right now. So it's a matter of bobbing and weaving and being ready for when that passion comes because when it does it's going to smack you upside the head and you got to be able to react to it yeah i mean so how do you take this passion and make it into a career just you just became a bmx rider how did you progress to that level so the foundation of it is like i said is is becoming so obsessed with it that you can't think about anything else right? Uh, particularly uh, as a teenager, right? It's easy to get distracted by getting your license, going to parties, you know, talking to girls, getting a girlfriend, going off to college. You got all these things. But the foundation of it, as I said, is being obsessed and only caring about that. Everything else is second, right? Once you do that, you've built it out to where you're setting yourself up to find the success, but it doesn't come automatically. What I did personally, um, I graduated high school, 
and lived in Northern Wisconsin. My graduating class was about 82 people. That was the, it's the biggest town in an hour drive in any direction, right? That's, that's the high school I went to. Nobody knew what I was doing, man. Nobody cared about what I was doing. I was just this kid that rode bikes, you know, and, and it, it, people up there, they, they smoked weed and they drank beers and, and they, and they went fishing and hunting, you know, that was the thing they did up there. I wanted to ride bikes. That's all I ever wanted to do. And I knew that. So I graduated and I'd looked at different places. I was going to maybe go to college. I didn't know really for sure what I was going to do, but I knew wherever I did or wherever I went, I wanted to ride bikes. So looked at Chicago, um, looked at Milwaukee, Minneapolis were a couple of like the close areas that I was going to go to. Um, and then there's a place in Pennsylvania called Woodward Action Sports Camp. It's been around since like the 80s, right? It's a really, really popular action sports place. And the summer after I graduated high school, I moved there. Or sorry, didn't move there. I, I went there to work for like eight weeks. So I went out my summer after, went to Woodward, worked for eight weeks, rode every single day when I wasn't working. I like wash dishes and like cabin counselor type stuff, you know, with the younger kids. Um Wrote every single day for eight weeks. It was awesome. I just was really honing in my craft. I'd hit this learning curve in my, my career that I was really, really learning a lot of stuff really quick. And this was about a year before I went professional. And uh, I remember leaving after those eight weeks and going back to northern Wisconsin and thinking, this sucks. This is not where I need to be right now. Um, I had met somebody at Woodward. Um, his name was Art D'Ambrosio. And he was from Memphis, Tennessee. He was my bunkmate for a while. And he said, hey, when this is all done, I'm going to move to Greenville, North Carolina, which is where all of the professional riders were moving to at the time. They had the facilities. They had the scene. They had the weather. They had all of this stuff going. It was like the perfect storm for professional riders. I'm moving there after camp, he said. All right. Well, you know, I need a roommate if you want to come. And I was like, I don't know, man. That's North Carolina from Wisconsin. You know, I'm 18 years old. That's a big freaking jump, right? Like that's a lot. That's a big commitment. So uh, I went home. Like I said, everything was not good. I'm like, this sucks. I'm not riding. I just went from riding eight weeks straight, learning all of this stuff to doing nothing. What was I going to do? Smoke cigarettes, drink, drink beers, you know, like with my friends, probably knock some chick up. Who knows? Right. I needed to get out of there. So I remember it was one week after I got home. I called my friend and I said, yo, are you still trying to move to uh, North Carolina? And he's like, yeah, but, you know, I got my job. I'm trying to save up some more money. He was still in Memphis, right? And I was like, well, dude, I'm leaving next week. He's like, well, well what do you mean? I'm like, I, I got to get out of here. I got to roll. So I just packed up my a 1993 Ford Escort. I had $400 in my pocket, uh, my BMX bike, and a bag of clothes. And I moved across the entire country got an apartment. He moved in a few days later, one bedroom apartment. And that was it. I started riding with the professionals. I started hanging with the people that were doing what I wanted to do. And all of a sudden I became a professional, right? They say that the average of, or you are the average of the five people you spend the most time with, right? So if you're looking to be a, a, a stock market guru, you better start hanging out with people that participate in the stock market. Right. If you're trying to be a professional uh, uh, baseball player, you better start hanging out with other professional baseball players or, you know, in that league. Um, it's across the board with whatever it is you do. If if you hang out with five broke people, you're going to be broke. 
You know, if you hang out with five rich people, guess what? They're going to bring you up to their level. So that's what happened to me when I moved to North Carolina. I got to feed off of all of this energy that was going around and I just became a better version of it. And I just fell into it. And, and that was the big catalyst of it. So a lot of people won't make that big transition. They won't take the risk to move from Wisconsin to North Carolina because what if? What if something goes wrong? What if this doesn't work out? What am I going to do? They ask too many questions. There's so much doubt, right? Right. That's the hump. You get over that hump, man. It's scary, but that's where real growth happens. And that's where real opportunity will present itself. Yeah. So how did you, like, how is that transition to go? Is there any logistics behind it? Or is it just, you say you're pro, you're pro. Yeah. Okay. So, um, as far as that goes, once I moved to North Carolina, um, a lot of stuff happening all at once, you know, I'm coming of age at this point, you know, I'm 19, I just turned 19 and trying to figure everything out. And with the BMX riding, particularly, um, there was a contest series called, uh, CFB it stood for crazy freaking bikers, right? It was the qualifying for, uh, X games and X trials and things like that. So, they had an amateur series and they had a professional series. The year I was my senior year to high school, actually, this is funny. I, my senior year of high school, when I was still in Wisconsin, um, my date had, uh, uh, gotten her dress and everything. She was, a, she was a sophomore and I was a senior and she had bought her dress for prom and I, 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 we were all ready to go and she can't go to prom unless she's invited by an upperclassman, which was me. And suddenly I found out there was a contest in California, an amateur contest. Well, it's professional and amateur, but I was an amateur at the time. And I had to bail on her. <laughs> she, she said it was all fine. It was all good. I totally get it. Go follow your dreams. She said uh, a week after I got back, she broke up with me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I can see that one coming. But that, that goes back into what my mentality was. I was obsessed that, that she was an afterthought. She was second. Okay. So anyway, back to your question, um, that amateur series that year, I finished third overall. And I remember telling myself, if I, if I finished top five, I would think about riding pro, but if I finished uh top three, then I would for sure ride pro. So the following year was when I was in North Carolina, surrounding myself with the big dogs and they're like, Sieg, man, you got you, you can't do that. You can't back off, man. You got to get in the pro contest. And uh, my first pro contest was actually in Jacksonville, Florida at a place called Kona Skate Park. So you just throw your hat in the ring for one of the tournaments yep. and you're pro? Yep. Yes, exactly. So with that, I think, I man, I don't remember. Because anybody can enter that particular con competition series. Anybody could enter any class. You just picked your okay. class, right? Um, it was like 30 bucks to enter amateur for a contest and it was a hundred bucks uh, to enter pro. So most people, in, they don't, they don't want to pay a hundred dollars just to go get their butts whooped. You know what I mean? So they got to have some sort of uh, confidence in themselves. So I paid the hundred bucks and back, you know, this is the early two thousands and I was 19 a hundred bucks was a lot of money. And uh, uh, I rode in that contest. Um, I think I got like 17th or something like that, but I, I turned a lot of heads. A lot of people saw me. Um, I started getting into more videos because of that. Uh, people knew my name and that was like my coming out party. Right. And people saw me, 
I started to get more attention. Then I went to the next contest, you know, a month later and then the next contest a month after that. And in between, I'm going to different events, uh, different shows, things like that, supplementing my income. And yeah. it was just a matter of leveling up a little bit at a time because a bunch of little things add up to one big thing over enough time. As you said, people turn their heads and look at you. How does that correlate to you making? Mm -hmm. um, so the way that BMX riding well, I guess still works to this day, but especially back then, there's two ways you can make money. There's doing well in competitions, you get prize money, and then there's doing shows and events, right? Um, if you're in the top tier riding uh, a superstar level, like the top five guys regularly, um, they get things, especially back then, like if I win $5,000 at a contest, my sponsor will match it or match it plus 25%, you know, depending on how your contract is. Right. And this is action sports early on in the game. So it's not anywhere close and it never has been close to, you know, MLB or the NFL or any of that stuff. But uh, typical contracts back then, like Dave Mira um, was the Tony Hawk of our sport. Right. He was the big, big dog, the Michael Jordan of our sport. Um, at one point, he was winning every single thing he touched ever. And he would pull in like, you know, 60, 70, close to 100 grand a month um, in contest winnings with the sponsor okay. matches, that stuff. At one point, this dude, and again, he lived in North Carolina where I moved. He became a very good friend of mine. And if you hang out with the best, you're going to become the best. So that said, we got into money one, talking about money one time. And he told me he had a, a it's a, a Slim Jim, you know, beef jerky. Yeah. On the front of his helmet, he had a full face, like the motocross style helmet. He had the Slim Jim sticker on there. They gave him $30,000 a month. Have that sticker on his helmet. Wow. wow. And that was the publicity that was yeah. him. You know, he was getting all of this airtime that it was worth it to them. I, I was scrolling through your Instagram and I saw that the first month that you made um, five figures, you made 13K. So if you were to kind of put that in percentages of how much was endorsements, how much was the sponsors and then the competitions. With that, let me stop you there before we go too far. That that 13K was through my marketing agency. That had nothing to do with riding or anything like that. Mm -hmm. um, I still am involved with riding as far as, as doing these events that you guys saw. But uh, my day-to-day -day job is a marketing agency. I have clients and things like that that I work with. But in your in your bike riding days, you would say it would be 50% sponsorships and then 50% the earnings from the competitions right um me personally and here's here's where we can tie this all together me personally i always thought that i needed to be the best bike rider on the planet to to make good money in order for me to make dave mira money i needed to beat dave mira in the contest and that's like chasing an invisible dragon you know you know he's just that good He's that talented. He trains like I could train every day of my life, but I'm still not going to live up to that. Like you can play basketball every single day, but you're not going to beat Le LeBron James one on one. Right. You're just not. That was Dave. Mira. Um, had I learned earlier in my career, I would have done it differently that, hey, I was in marketing. These sponsors want people that are good, regular stand up, relatable guys. But I was too busy not paying any attention to my attitude. I was just trying to become the best rider so they would pay attention to me. I had it all. That's why I do what I do now. I, I, I try to mentor people that'll listen and tell them those same things. Like do it this way because I would have done it that way. This is just a little different angle. So how did the contracts work between you and let's say Red Bull or whoever wanted to sign you to wear their gear? Um. So 
for me personally, um, I could speculate on how those guys did it, but with me personally, the way that Red Bull would work, um, they will contact me and they will say, hey, we have an event coming up um, on this day in this city. Are you available? And I'll say, sure. Yes, I might check my calendar. Yes, I'm available. And they'll they'll send me, they'll say, okay, it's this much. Um, it's it's the flights are paid for. There's there's pricing and there's terms, right? So there's money and there's terms on any contract. Both are negotiable. So if you can't get the money you want, then you can negotiate terms, right? Hey, we'll give you uh, uh, $3,500 to come MC this event, um, but you got to pay your flight. And I'd be like, I don't know about that. You know, like, how about you give me 3,300 and you pay for my flight? You know, that's just an example off the top of my head. But, and most, and Red Bull is not going to ever say, hey, you need to pay for your flight. They're going to pay for that regardless. Like they're, they're really, really good with that stuff. But when Red Bull reaches out to me, they, they, they give me a price. And then if I'm feeling myself, I'll say, eh, I need this much right? Depending on the event and things like that, you can counter. But typically when a, when a company like Red Bull or Nitro Circus reaches out, they've got their set prices and you, you smile and take it with take it happily. Did Red Bull ever do contingencies where if you place top five, we'll give you this much of a bonus, top 10? Yeah. Not again, not for me, um, but for guys like Dave Mira and stuff. Yes, they will do that. Um, I don't know anything in depth on the Red Bull contracts, but I do know like, uh, like, well, like that Slim Jim deal, for example, yeah. you know, um, the guy, Trevor Meyer, that was at our show, um, at Cypress Bay, uh, he, he won three X games medals, right. And he was sponsored by gold medals. He was sponsored by GT. So he won, you know, whatever, like $15,000 and GT in his contract, we will match all of your contest winning. So you'd get another 15,000 on top of that. So okay. is that the only way the riders make money? Just the endorsements matching the winnings or do they have a base contract? Well, there's, yeah. So the, good question. So there okay. is the base contract, right? The, the stock run of the mill contract that they're going to sign regardless. And depending on how desirable you are as a marketable item, that's when you can start throwing in the contingencies, the terms, the perks, the things like that, the bonuses, right? Um, yeah. But if you're not that kind of rider, you're just stoked to get that base con uh, that base contract, and you're happy to do that. You know, um, I'm going to be honest, man. There there isn't a whole lot of money in B professional BMX riding, particularly now with the contest, unless you're like top five. Like uh, my guys that are doing these shows, they're making more money than the guys who are getting seventh, eighth place at the big contests, right? Like it's just it's a struggle, it's a grind. They do it because they love it. Um, yeah. The reason I got out of it, I could have still competed for many years, um, but I got out of it because I'm like, dude, I, you know, I, I can make more money talking. I can make more money as this MC stuff. And I now I ride for fun. I don't have to ride to, to learn the, the craziest tricks. I got out with no concussions, no major injuries. Um, and I've got all my wits about me. I know some of my guys, they ride until the wheels fall off, man. And you can't even have a conversation with them anymore. So it, it, it's just a matter of, is it worth it at the end of the day? Um, the guys you saw, they do these shows um, to supplement their income. Zach, the guy with the long dreads. Yeah. Um, he got a bronze medal at the X Games a few years ago. No sponsors whatsoever. So he just won the prize money. Right. Okay. So when he goes out and he does these events to supplement his competition income. Got it. So working from basically how BMX riders make money, 
how did you make the transition from besides as you said money um from being a writer to being the manager for um the no hate tour and emceeing for events mm-hmm. how was that transition so that transition came kind of naturally um i was doing a lot of events a lot of shows i'm still competing um, but doing the shows to supplement the income and I enjoyed, you know, we were riding for a lot of kids and doing these events and super fun. Um, and I was just a rider we had a tour manager. We had, uh, uh, the guy who ran the team that was the tour manager. So we would go from there all around the country and he just started being bad at his job, right? Like really, really bad at it, dropping the ball, a lot of things. And, and he would get lazy. Hey, do you want to announce for a little bit? I'm fine, you know, whatever, I'll do it. You know, we're just kind of having a good time. We're basically just coming up together in this, in this, in this industry. And uh, he gave me the microphone. I started doing it. And then I started thinking, I'm like, hey, what would be so bad about acquiring a different skill within an industry that I care about? So I started doing it more. I started doing it more. And, you know, my, you know, friends and family, oh, you can't ride bikes forever. What are you going to do when you get too old to ride bikes? And like I said, it happened organically. To where I picked up that microphone, I started talking and ultimately I just started doing the things that the things he was doing right. I did more of and the things he was doing wrong. I did less of. And before I knew it, I, I could ride. I could MC. I could drive a trailer. I could uh, 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 book the events, book the hotels, all of the logistical stuff a tour manager needs to do because this guy was dropping the ball so bad. My stock went up quite a bit. And I started getting other gigs, doing these other things, not just riding. And then, so they just gave you that position. Well, that company that he was with was a company called Creative Sports out of uh, California. And another one of our ride, my riding friends that was doing shows with me at the time started his own company, got a bunch of different events lined up. And and eventually he's like, hey, man, I want to hire you to come run one of these teams for me. And And that was ASA or HEA? No, that uh, actually, funny. ASA is the company you guys saw. AGA um, was the company this one turned into. So okay. AGA is slightly different. Um, this company was called Rise Above BMX at the time, and uh, this was probably 06, no 07. Um, I started doing shows for him full time, and then 2009 we got the National Guard uh, contract, which wasn't the Marines; it was the National Guard, and we developed the program that you guys saw the lead generation, the, 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 the branding for the Marines, all that stuff. We developed that program from 2009 to 2017. Um, every little tiny bit of what you guys saw was meticulously crafted down to the last song in the playlist yeah. over that time period. Then I, um, the contract fell through a whole bunch of bureaucratic stuff. We'd have to do a whole nother podcast on that. Um, but that fell through. I didn't have a job for like a year. And that's when ASA was like, hey, we got the stuff with the Marines. We'd like to hire you to come run this team. And I've been doing that ever since. So your focus at ASA is the No Hate Tour and you run that. Correct. So how do you, the Marines play a role? They, like you wear their merch, you give like below signs of Marines. How do yeah, they the, fund? The best the way, the best way to describe our partnership with the Marines is simply that somebody's got to pay for it. Right. We've got this message that's very, very powerful on and it needs to be delivered to these kids on a really bigger scale. Right. Um, The Marines love getting in front of their target demographic, talking about marketing. They want to be in front of kids who are 18, 17, 18, 19 years old, and they want to look cool in front of them. 
right? So they, they partner up with us. They fund the whole program and then they get to hang out and participate. Um, you'll notice I didn't say anything about, hey, guys, the Marines can help you pay for college. Go talk to them about enlisting in the military. I didn't say anything about that, right? All I did was talk about working hard, following your dreams, staying away from the haters. By the way, thank the Marines. They're the reason we're here. So do you get like any money from if you get someone to enlist in the Marines or? Yeah, that so that that's some really uh, iffy water on that. Okay. That would be incentives and stuff, and that's getting into what we were talking about with the compensation yeah. earlier. But no, as far as the bureaucratic side of things go, with that, um, that's way above my pay grade. That's for sure. <laughs> but I, they do quantify that at the at the, yeah. at the end. Um, the the stuff we bring in, you know, they they look at those numbers. It's a very quantifiable thing. Which I mean, ASA has had a contract with the Marines for. 22 years. So, I mean, they've been around with us for quite some time, but the iteration of the event that you guys saw, uh, you know, it's been, been there since I brought it over from the national guard stuff that we developed. And that's been since like 2018. Okay. So do you handle the finances of the people that are working with you as well on the tour, like negotiate contracts, things of that sort? Um, it's more, I don't handle them as much as I consult with them. Hey, you know, uh, you know, same thing we were talking about earlier, terms and conditions, you know, and price. Hey, if you're not getting your price, you should ask for these terms. If you're not going to get these terms, you better ask for this price. Right. Yeah. And I, I will consult with them on that, but ultimately they go to ASA. Um, who's the company that, that pays them, that sends them their paychecks. And ASA is getting their money from a marketing company. Um, I think out of Chicago or something. And then they're getting their money from the Marines. So it's a whole trickle down uh, uh, system. So do they have like a contingency in their contract where they have to show up to this many like locations of the tour? Yeah. Um, this particular tour, um, we're doing 11 markets. Um, so we're getting a, a pot of money to do 11 markets, you know, hotel, uh, lodging, rider pay, manager pay, um, merch, cards, things like that. Um, that's all comes from a big pot of cash to fund the 11 markets, right? Yeah. Right now, uh, well, we did Miami was our first market. Um, the week after that, we did New Orleans. I went to London for a minute, but the guys, I had somebody fill me in. Um, after New Orleans, it was Pensacola. And now we're in Atlanta uh, this week. This is actually uh, my place here. I live in Atlanta and it's kind of nice because I'm home while touring. So it's, it's really nice to be able to do. Do these athletes have agents or do the brands go directly to the athletes? They don't have any representation. Great question. Some... Yeah, it, it can be either. Um, some of them have agents. Some of them don't. Um, again, so the smaller the, ones probably don't. The top tier guys. Um, yeah, they're going to have agent representation for sure. Um, the guys on this tour, they're, they're regular, they're the regular riders, you know, they're the ones that are still doing shows to supplement their income. But when you get to a certain tier, like for example, BMX riding's in the Olympics now, right? The Olympic guys, you know, damn well that they've got an agent, like they got people representing them. Cause that's a whole nother level of, of stuff that you got going on. No doubt. That makes sense. I mean, these agents, they just basically respond to all the marketing calls and say, then go shape their, their packages. Right. And and like I said a moment ago, I'm consulting with these guys. So in a way, I'm their agent, but yeah. I'm not I'm not asking for a cut. Right. I would go do it a little bit more aggressively to help them because I'm getting a cut. If I can get Zach Newman uh, a sponsorship from Dunkin Donuts, you know, I'm, I'm taking a cut of that. But 
that isn't the route I've tried. I could do that. You know, I would just be busy emailing Dunkin' Donuts all day and showing the value of what Zach can bring them. You're connecting them. And that's where you get your cut. And this, what is the cut usually? Because in the NFL, it's like 3%. 3%? Yeah. I would, I, I don't know for sure. Um, I personally never had an agent, but I went talking to Dave Mira over the years. I want to say it's closer to like 10%. Like they get a nice little chunk, but the money isn't the same. You know, 3% of, of 10 million isn't, you know, it's 10% of a hundred thousand. You know what I mean? So it's a little bit different. Yeah. So do you choose the athletes to go on certain tours to market certain companies or agencies or? Yeah. Um, well, my particular tour that I run, I do have say in who comes and who doesn't come. How do you basically choose the right athlete to represent a brand? And how's that whole process? The, the, the way that that is, and at least how I do it, is it's not so much the right athlete for the particular brand. It's the right athlete for my particular show, which represents the brand. All right. So I'm not picking them because I know he would fit well with the Marines. Right. Yeah. I'm picking them because he fits well in my show, which is the product we give the Marines. So that helps out a little bit. But ultimately, it comes down to with my show coming on my tour, you can be the the, the best freaking rider on the planet and just be a lame to hang out with or worse, just a jerk. You're not going to be on my team ever. I just don't want to hang out with you. We go on these uh, uh, trips, dude. There's sometimes we're, we're together three, four weeks at a time, living in the same Airbnb, driving in the same truck, going to the same shows. If you're anything but a nice guy, dude, you're not going to cut it. So I would rather take the okay ride. Obviously, you still have to be good at riding, but I would rather take the okay rider who's just a genuine stand-up guy over the superstar prima donna dude all day long on this particular tour. Right. However, if we have a, a big event coming up where they want some notoriety, they want some names and it's just like a weekend show. Right. That's a different story. I'm going to start picking out the guys that got absolute bangers. They're dropping hammers and they're going to represent that event or that sponsor particularly. So it just depends on the situation. Yeah. And how much money could a rider get for doing these events? I know you said sometimes more than the competitions, but mm -hmm. how much? Um, for example, uh, yeah, so don't quote me on this, but some of the nitro, you guys know Nitro Circus? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, I, I did MC work for the Nitro Circus for a couple of years and talking to those guys, they were getting paid anywhere between 2,500 and maybe six grand a show. And how many shows would they do? Um, we typically do one on Friday, one on Saturday. We'd fly out Thursday night, do our show Friday, do our show Saturday and fly back Sunday. Right. And how did Nitro Circus get in contact with you? this knowing people network or yeah and that and that's a big one man it's just like i said at the outset of this whole interview was putting yourself where the people are the people that are doing the things that you're doing you're going to start meeting people and you're going to start actually getting in those doors you know like oh hey i do this oh hey you do that and you just start percolating in that network and before long hey so and so got hurt we need a fill-in or so-and-so has another event. We need you, you need somebody to do it. Can you do it? And then you get in there, you do a good job. And hey, do you want to stick around? We had a kid actually uh, years ago, we had a rider get hurt of somewhere in Kentucky at these this exact show with the other company. Um, it was for the National Guard. And we had a dude get hurt and we needed a kid to ride. Met a kid at the skate park. Uh, hey, do you want to fill in for a show we got tomorrow? Yeah, I would love to. Where's it at? It was at his high school. <laughs> 
So he got to get out of class, ride the show with us at his school, show everybody what he was made out of. And he ended up doing a couple of weeks of tour with us, you know, a, a different tour, a different year because he, you know, he was a senior, he graduated and we needed a guy. Hey, we remembered you was, you were a good rider. You got your foot in the door. Let's come on out and do another two weeks. So it's just only people, man. It, it really is. That's life. Unless you have the most talent ever and it's absolutely can't be ignored. It, it, it all, it's all about knowing the right people. Yeah. That's it. And unless you were the most talented person at your particular craft, you have to know the right people because there's always going to be somebody better than you unless you're the best, you know, and that's a different story. <laughs> that could be. What else do you do at ASA besides no hate tour? Honestly, man, uh, I've been trying to get out of ASA for years. <laughs> oh, and I say that jokingly, but also kind of serious, man. Ever since, uh, uh, because this industry, man, it's volatile, you know, like you might not have a job tomorrow. Like this whole Marines contract could fall through tomorrow and and I'm out of a job. And I dealt with that back in 2017, like I said, um, a bunch of bureaucratic, crazy government nonsense happened and our contract fell through. And suddenly this program I had been developing for eight years was no longer anything. All of my skills, all of the stuff I had built uh, of this entire show was completely useless. It was a product that didn't have a market, right? Suddenly, I uh, I don't have a job for a year. And I'm like, this sucks. Marines came around. ASA came around. They hired me. I started doing again what I loved. 2018, 2019, uh, started getting it built up again. Okay, I'm back in the groove. I'm doing what I love. I got my show inserted to their format. Everything was great. COVID happens. Guess what we're not doing anymore when COVID happens? We ain't going to schools doing shows, right? So once again, I didn't have a freaking job. And that was the moment where I said to myself, I'm like, man, you got to develop a different set of skills, just like I did back in the day when I told you I picked up the microphone, right? You got to develop a different set of skills so you can become more valuable to more people. And that's when I did. COVID happened. My brother and I, we, we bought into a, a program and we learned everything you could possibly learn about digital marketing and how to sell things online, whether it be brands, whether it be uh uh, uh, you know, coaching program or a course or whatever, you know, products, advertising products on the internet, um, how to develop a product, all of this different stuff. And I took a big 30,000 foot view of that. And as COVID progressed, I kind of whittled out my own little niche. Suddenly I've got an agency with clients. I've got a, a, a job now that pays me and I don't have to leave. Whew, great. Now, if I lose my job again, oh, it doesn't matter. So COVID ends, the tours start back up. ASA calls me, hey, you know, we got these tours coming up. And I was like, dude, I don't know, man. Kind of busy, you know? Oh, really? Like, what do you mean? Blah, blah, blah. And I was like, I just got this stuff going on. Like, I, it got to the point where I, I, prior to COVID, I said to myself, I wanted to do these tours because I want to, not because I had to, right? That's how I used to do it. I had to do these tours because I had bills to pay. I, you know, I had things to do. And then COVID happened. I learned that new set of skills. And now I do these tours because I want to, not because I have to. And when I was able to do that, my stock went up even more and like, hey, we need you. What's it going to take? And that was a little bit, it's easier to negotiate when you're in the driver's seat. Yeah. Yeah. So this agency, is that not, that's besides ASA, that's completely. Yeah, that, has nothing, that has nothing to do with ASA. Okay. Yep. Yeah. That is just me with my personal clients. Um, Back to your question a moment ago, you'd mentioned, uh, you know, what else do I do at ASA? I'm just the tour manager. That's all I do. Okay. 
Um, so do you get in contact with schools or we have a, we have a booking department within ASA that does that. Thank God. I, I used to do that with uh, the national guard stuff and I hate it. It was the worst job you could ever do. This show is free to the schools. Oh, wow. They don't so pay the anything. National guard pays for everything. Yeah. Well, the Marines in this. Sense, but the, yeah. So whoever the, your salary for it, and then we offer it free to the schools. Great. Oh, you wow. think that would be awesome, right? Like that would be the schools would eat that up. No. It ain't that easy. Like to book the five schools that we booked there in your county, dude, we, they have to reach out to like 175 different schools to get those five booked. And they just whittle it down. It's like a sales funnel. They 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 send a message out to 150. They get 50 replies. And of those 50 replies, maybe 20 are serious. And of those 20, they, they get another reply from 10 and they book five. So it's just constant cold outreach. And, uh, I, I can't do that, man. That that's sales. I, I'm more about marketing. I'm more about putting stuff out there so the schools are like, wow, this sounds great. Let me reach out to them. I can't do that cold outreach stuff. It ain't for me. So talk about marketing because I'm interested in it. And I'm sure people who are listening to this are interested in that. How do you market in, well, in, the, thing, in the BMX world? First things first, man. Marketing makes the entire world go round. That's it. Marketing and sales. Sales and marketing. That's it. The difference between sales and marketing, do you guys know? One is different than the other. <laughs> well, <that's a> good <laughs> <laughs> sales is walking the transaction. Up, let's say you want to get a date, right? Sales is walking up to a woman at the bar and saying, hey, you're really cute. Can I get your phone number? Right. If you walk up to 100 women and say that exact line, maybe one says yes, maybe two. Right. That's a 2% conversion. Okay. Now, marketing is walking up to that same woman and 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 don't say that what you just said instead saying hey my name's dan can i buy you a drink okay you do that to 100 women maybe you get 50 no's but that means you got 50 yeses right you mm -hmm. she's just entered your world you're now marketing yourself to her showing her the value that you have right 50 of those yeses and of those 50 you buy them a drink and now you have 50 conversations so that person can get to know you. They've entered the middle of your marketing funnel. They're getting to know you. They're learning about you. They're laughing with you. Or maybe not laughing. Maybe they don't like you. Of those 50 conversations, maybe 20 of them are going to move on to the next step, which is, hey, I really enjoyed this drink. Would you like to hang out sometime? Right? Yeah. Maybe only 20 say yes. All right. Now you get her phone number. You established more of a relationship. You send her a text. You give her a call. Next Friday, you hang out. Boom, you've got your bottom of the funnel conversion 20 or 10 or 15 times. And that's marketing. Marketing is showing them the value, bringing them through the rapport stage and actually getting to know them. Sales is saying, hey, I'm awesome. You should buy my stuff. You should go out with me. I'm great. Look how good looking I am. That's yeah. sales. Sales works. Sales has been around since the dawn of time. You're not selling, you're being sold on something. Right now, I'm selling you on this concept, right? Sales has a place and a time, but if you want to make your sales easier, you have to install the marketing to make that happen. And so how do you market to, let's say, the high school audience? You just wear the shirts of the Marines and you just say, hard work, thanks to the Marines. Or sure. And well, there's a, there's a kind of a fine line between um, branding and marketing right? Brand marketing and sales. And then there's like a Venn diagram with branding in there as well. What we're doing with the Marines is 
more on the branding side. That's the wearing the t-shirts. That's so somebody um, can remember you, right? Uh, marketing in a nutshell is the right message to the right person at the right time. Okay. Those are the three things. So for example, let's say there's a kid in, in, in your school. Um, he likes the Marines. Um, he, he, he needs some, how to pay for college. He doesn't know how he is. That's the right message to the right person, but he's only 15. It's not the right time. Yeah. Boom. Or let's say he's 18 and he needs someone to pay for college, but he doesn't like the mess. He doesn't like the Marines because they're, they're, they're not his, they don't line with his personality. Maybe he likes the Navy, right? Their message is going to resonate with them. Right. So what we're doing with these kids isn't so much about marketing as it is more falling in the level of branding. So when the kid maybe down the road in six months, something happens, he's like, oh, yeah, I do remember those Marines. Or I, I see that commercial and the light goes off and my or light bulb goes off. Oh, yeah. Those bike riders were there. That's, you know, I didn't even think about that. And now all of a sudden you convert. So you don't realize that until down the road. I could ask questions all day. So, yeah, I <laughs> this is this is this is what I love. Yeah, man, and I, and I like your, I really like how you guys have been able to keep it on track towards your audience because right now you guys obviously have your niche. It's it's the the sports finance stuff, right? Yeah. And 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 the fact that you guys know that already, man, that's something I didn't know until I was like twenty eight. You yeah. know, like. You guys are ahead of the curve on that. And, and you've obviously, you know, whether it's your parents or mentors, whoever, you can tell that you guys know more than most at your age. We just noticed that there's like no finance, like contracts, details sort of thing in the podcast game right now. So we just... you're finding a hole in the market. Yeah, yeah exactly. And that's I, it. I, I now we just have to learn how to market the podcast. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. How many, how many, uh, do you guys got any subscribers, any viewers? How's that look? Um, we have 500 viewers. Yeah. Cool. So that's, and that's terrible. One of my, this is, I heard this recently. Um, everybody's chasing clout on the internet. Everybody is like, oh, you know, I need thousands and hundreds. Mr. Beast has 237 million subscribers. Like, I only have 10,000. You know, my, my videos only get 500 views, right? Bro, imagine 500 people in your living room watching this. Yeah. Right. It's not about quantity. It's about the quality of your message. And if you focus on the quality of your message first, the quantity will come by by extension. It's just a natural byproduct of it. Yeah. And the bummer is most people give up too soon. You know, most people are like, oh, it's not working. I've only got 500 subscribers. You know, it's not working. And, dude, they, and they, they dig and they dig and they dig and then they stop that far from from success and then they go start a new hole somewhere else they dig and they dig and they dig and they're that close to the freaking diamond right and they pull out their their pickaxe and they go dig another hole you got to keep digging on one thing find the hole in the market which you seem to have done and continue to dig until it gets traction and it might not be for another two or three years right Same. The things that I'm saying right now, like I deliver them with with confidence and 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 with eloquency, and I, I I know what I'm talking about. That came from me saying this stuff over and over and over again, talking to kids at these shows, right? Hosting the events, um, talking to my clients, taking sales calls. You develop your message over time. The people will find you after that. Yeah, well, when you're talking about the the kid, like when you talk about Mr. Beast and. The show, I thought you were going to bring him out. 
Yeah, I know. Everyone did. I get that at every single school, we get the exact same reaction, man. Um, I've done these shows in Hawaii. I've done them in Alaska. I've done them in uh, Maine. I've done them in Florida. I've done them in LA and San Diego, right? Everywhere in between. And I've been doing the Mr. Beast speech for the last maybe two years now, um, since COVID basically. And it gets the same reaction at every school, big school, small school, country school, city school, does not matter. Every single person knows who he is and they resonate with that bit um that said i'm working diligently and by diligently i feel like i'm spinning my freaking hamster wheel trying to get in touch with his people because more than anything i want to have the beast legacy tour and 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 put it on a platform to where we can get our message out to everybody at a way bigger scale yeah right with the marines um, and, and politics and bureaucratic stuff. Like there's only so many dollars we can spend of the taxpayers money. You know what I mean? Like ultimately the Marines are funded by taxpayers and they fund our program. Um, Mr. Beast is not, he's a private citizen that it's through the roof, right. Of the, the potential on that. So he's harder to get a hold of than the president. Um, and there's just no real easy way. He lives in my freaking town. Our town's not even that big, but I, I, you can't get anywhere near him. Right. And, uh, and he, he gets pitched this stuff all of the time by a bunch of nitwits that have harebrained schemes and things. And they're trying to take advantage and all that stuff, which is a bummer because it puts me in, in a bad spot because I have a legitimate scalable product that will f- help his brand and help give back and philanthropy and all that stuff. But I can't get to him. Yeah, It's just like going back to the woman example. You, you got a woman at a bar. You're the nicest guy on the planet. She would absolutely love you, but she's being bombarded by all these other jerks that you can't even get your word in. Yeah. All right. So final questions. What are the what are the steps people can take into, you know, be successful in the BMS world or just any world in general? Man, we talked a little bit about it earlier um, and I'll really hammer home the point. It's a matter of finding something that you love to do, Um, whether you're into skateboarding, surfing, BMX riding, gymnastics, becoming a TikTok influencer. It's all the same. You have to have a passion. And you have to become obsessed with it. More importantly, past that, not more importantly, the second step is understanding that not only will you be bad at the beginning, but you're actually going to suck a whole lot. And people will misunderstand you. They will give you a hard time. They're going to try to bring you down to their level. Getting past that and pushing through and focusing. And that's where the obsession at the beginning is so important in step one. Step two is getting past the haters. And then step three is understanding that you don't have to be the best to make money. You just have to be better than most. And once you understand that, once that light bulb goes off, the sky's the limit. And then you can just, you can work your way to being the best. It's always a goal to have, but you don't have to be the best. You don't have to have the most subscribers. You don't have to have the most clout. You just have to be better than most. That's how I made my career. I was never the best BMX rider. I never claimed to be the best BMX rider, but I had a darn good time doing it. And I, in that process, I became better than most, which made me marketable to sponsors, to events. And they started paying me to do something I love to do. I, I have one last question. Oh, yeah. How big is the BMX going to the Olympics this year, next summer? So for the sport and 
will it bring more money to the sport massive 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 the amount of money being poured into bmx riding as a result of the olympics i couldn't even begin to quantify it um the first time well bmx racing which is whoever gets across the finish line fastest wins that's been in the olympics for since like 2010 or something like that or 2008 um, whenever that Olympics was, it's been around for a while. <clears throat> BMX freestyle, which is what we did at the event at your guys' show. Um, that's been the first time was in 2020 in Tokyo. Um, this summer will be the second time in Paris at the 2024 games. Um, back in 20, 2018 or 2019, being in my industry in, in, in that hotbed of riding that I told you guys about North Carolina, that's where Jimmy, Mr. Beast is from. Um, it used to be the BMX capital. That's where I moved when I got out of high school. Um, the one of our guys got hired by the Chinese government to go live in China and train a BMX team. They're like, the Chinese government was like, hey, this new sport is in the Olympics. We better start grooming our athletes so we can start winning some medals in four years or eight years or 12 years. Right. So he got hired a heck of a good salary to go over there and teach people who freaking sucked at riding BMX bikes, right? But they're not going to suck forever. They just weren't good at the time. So he took on this team because there's not a whole lot of BMX riders in China, but he developed and cultivated, started to cultivate this team. They got paid all expense paid trip to come to North Carolina and ride one of the best skate parks in the world on China's dime um, at the end of 2019, right? So China invested a lot of resources the united states so is brazil so is england right they're, all this money is now being poured and they're nurturing new talent to eventually one day get that those medals right which is funny because i see like girls at the skate park especially back then i said hey there isn't that many female bmx riders in the world start riding now and you could have an olympic medal by 2028 and they didn't take me serious they're busy you know being teenagers but it the small the pool pun intended of female riders and, you know, is not nearly as big as swimmers. If I'm going to go be a best female swimmer and get an Olympic medal, that's a, a long mountain to yeah. climb. But to become the best female BMX rider and win a medal, that's a lot less uh, of hurdles to deal with, right? So, but the medal is worth the same in marketable dollars. Like yeah. you, you still, an Olympic gold medal with Simone Biles in the gy- gymnastics is worth the same amount in endorsements as a, a BMX bike riding medal. It's gold and it's from the Olympics, right? But I digress back to the, the, the China thing. They were pumping a ton of money into, my friend was making six figures teaching kids how to ride BMX bikes, right? Who would have thought? He's living in China, hanging out. Um, and he loved it. It wasn't like, you know, everybody says China is communist and whatever, but he had a great time over there. You know, he was in Beijing having a great time. COVID happened. And they pulled the plug on everything. So none of those riders ever got good, nothing. They, they were all getting salaries as beginning bike riders from the Chinese government. Oh, the riders getting salaries too? The riders were getting salaries. And they weren't even good. I, you know, I, I'm in my late 30s at the time. And I'm like, I'm better than these people. Why aren't I getting a, a, a salary? It's because I'm not from China. <laughs> but Took on your Chinese citizenship. Yeah, tell me about it. So same thing here in, in the States. Like I my, the pool of me trying to compete and get the Olympic uh, nomination for the United States ain't happening. If I was Chinese, I'm going to get the Olympic uh, 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 nomination immediately because I'm better than everybody over there. Don't yeah. don't quote me on that. I'm not. I'm sure there's plenty of riders in China that are better than me, but I would have a pretty good chance, you know. I think so because the episodes are usually not more than forty minutes, so cap it cool. up there. But yeah, I really appreciate you taking an hour of your day just to speak with two random teenagers in yeah. Western Florida. 
Hey, man, I'll tell you what. I mean, if you want to include this or not, um, when I was a kid, like I told you, I woke up and thought about bike riding. I went to sleep and I thought about bike riding. That was my big why. I didn't know why I wanted to ride bikes. I just knew that's what I wanted to do, right? My big why today, um, what I wake up and think about when I go to bed and think about is how to be the person that I wish that I had for somebody at any particular age. So how old are you, Sai? 17. 17? Yeah, we're about to be the person for you guys that I wish that I had at 17, right? If you guys have any questions, hit me up, shoot me an email. Like, hey, what, what did you do in this situation, dude? I, I The only thing I can do is bring those people up. And if I, I can do it even a little bit, man, that's why I still do these events. That's why I still agree to it is because I happen to be able to reach these kids and they're going to listen. And they put us in rooms like this, man. So yeah, it was an hour out of my day. I'm a busy guy, yada, yada, yada. But dude, if this helps you guys in any way, even if you learn something from what I said, yeah. dude, awesome. If you can get this out and more people can see it, awesome. You know, if you need help getting your podcast out there more, you know, let's talk some more. I'm down with that, man. As, as much as I can help you guys, I'm into it. Thank you. I appreciate it. We really appreciate it. All right, guys. Keep in touch. Have a good one. Later. And that's a wrap on that episode, everyone. Thank you so much for sticking around to the end. I, I know it's a long one, but I, I think Dan C really has a lot of inf- interesting things to say. Sai and I had an amazing time interviewing him, and hopefully you guys had an amazing time listening to him speak. Once again, thank you so much to Dan Sieg for taking his time out of his day to speak with us and come on Contract Crunchers. And that's a wrap for the episode. Everyone. See you guys next week.